Hi everyone, um, it's uh, really good to be um, have, doing this podcast again. Uh, some of you were uh, joined us the other night for a live Facebook live kind of YouTube live. Um, this is a second one of these kind of live events we're doing this week and it's a real privilege uh, today for this kind of Guardians of the Flame podcast to be interviewing a real special guest, Sami Awad. Um, and I'll introduce him just a second. Later on at the very end, we're also going to be joined by Mercy Aiken. Mercy's recently written a book or co-written a book about the life of Sami's dad, Bashara Awad, who's the founder of Bethlehem Bible College. Um, so, you know, the theme of Guardians of the Flame is um, profiling uh, and amplifying voices of peace and justice in places of conflict. And um, so without further ado, um, uh, Josh, our wonderful technician in the background, is going to bring uh, Sami Awad on. Sami, it's really good to have you with us tonight. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's an honor and privilege to be with you. Yeah, so Sammy was last with us in Rostrevor, I guess, five or six years ago. Um, tell us where you're speaking from tonight, Sammy. Well, I am speaking from a, a much bigger town called Bethlehem than what people are used to. And uh, yeah, I'm speaking from my home on a very cold winter night. Uh, it's beautiful yeah. to be in Bethlehem, to be in this beautiful city and uh, everything that it brings. And at the same time, we are waiting for the big snowstorm to hit us in a couple of days. I think people have been watching what's happened in Turkey and Greece, and we're supposed to be next. So wow. it'll be the biggest storm in 20 years to land wow. here. Wow. So you're going to Bethlehem will be white, snow covered. It'll be white. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Sami, why don't we just start with uh, many of... Many people listening will know who you are, and uh, but maybe quite a few maybe don't. Can you just tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, tell us about your life, a bit about your story, who you are, and how you came to be doing what you're doing um, in the Holy Land Trust and all the other bits and pieces you do? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I'll start by saying, as many would know, I am a Palestinian, and I come from a Christian family, and our Christian roots go way, way back. You know, like many times when when people find out that Palestinians are Christians or some Palestinians are Christians, the first thing they're asking is, when did you convert? You know, assuming <laughs> it was on the hands of some Irish missionaries that we converted <laughs> and became, uh, Christian or American missionaries. Uh, but then for me, it's, it's very important to tell them that, uh, you know, we're the ones that converted them. Uh, and, and sometimes we regret doing that. Uh, but, uh, but for us, yes, we, we go back as a family that's been living here for centuries uh, as a family living in the Holy Land. I don't think we have enough time to share 800 years of history, but I'll share the last part, which is a pivotal part for the lives of many Palestinians, which is 1948, as many people know. 1948 was a time where a war broke out in this land after uh, the state of Israel declared its independence. And there was a war that resulted from this uh, that led to what Palestinians called the Nakba, the catastrophe. And in a sense, my, my story began there. Uh, who I am now is because of the family that suffered in the Nakba. Uh, my grandfather, the person who would have been my grandfather was killed uh, during that time. And the family my grandmother and seven children became refugees. Uh, they were kicked out from their home. Uh, the oldest son was 12 and the youngest was two. So a woman with seven kids and 
just the clothes on their back uh, left their home uh, and became refugees. It's it was a disaster for the family. Like thousands and tens of thousands of Palestinians suffered at that time. Uh, the story is not the story of suffering as much as it is also the story of of a deep understanding that revenge and retaliation are not part of who we became. And my grandmother always insisted that as a family, we will never seek revenge and retaliation for what happened to her, losing her husband or losing uh, her home and her, her life. And at the same time, she always insisted that as a family, we will also proactively seek peace and reconciliation with those who have done this to us. This was the message that she planted in her children and grandchildren and spoke until she passed, passed uh, on. And so I grew up in a family that, that understood this is what justice is, seeking peace and reconciliation with those who have done hurt to you is the greatest form of justice that you can attain. Uh, because many times we think justice is about revenge, retaliation, getting back what we lost or making them pay for what they did to us. Uh, so for her to introduce a whole new understanding of justice. Uh, so I grew up in a, a beautiful family committed to peace, committed to justice, committed to nonviolence. My biggest inspiration as a child was an uncle of mine. His name is Mubarak Awad, who in the early 80s, uh, so that's when I was around 12, 13 years old, opened a center called the Palestinian Center for the Study of Nonviolence, where he began to promote, engage, train, teach, and actively involve nonviolent activism as a way for us as Palestinians to resist the occupation that we had been living on. Uh, since 1967, as many people know, we had been and continue to live under this really military occupation. Military rule is what determines our life as Palestinians living under that system. And then for him, he had studied Gandhi, he had studied Martin Luther King, he had traveled to India, and he felt a strong need that as Palestinians we can engage and nonviolent activism to end the occupation. Uh, my first demonstration with him, I was 12 years old when I joined oh. him in planting olive trees in a land that was going to be confiscated. Mm -hmm. And soldiers came and, and tried to stop us and uproot the trees. And we planted the trees back again while the soldiers were there. And that was just on a personal level as a child. It just was a yeah. sense of the the greatest sense of empowerment that I could ever feel. This is what nonviolence is for me. Mm. Sense of, yes, mm. you, you are empowered. You, you have an ability mm. to stand up against those who commit injustice to you, if it's mm. on a personal level or a collective level. And you mm. could do that without harming them physically, emotionally, or even spiritually, harming mm. your, en your enemy. A big turning point in my life happened when my uncle... In 1988, during the second tier of what is known as the Intifada, which was a popular uprising that was happening in the land at that time, that was very nonviolent in its nature. The Israeli authorities arrested my uncle, put him on trial, and even when it reached the Israeli high court, the decision of the Israeli high court was to deport my uncle, to kick him out from the land. Now we're talking about, again, a person whose ancestors have lived here for hundreds of years, who had full rights of living in this land, was revoked his 
legal, legitimate right to live here because of his engagement in nonviolence. And for me, that was a shock and that was the determinant of my life. I need to understand why. I, I could almost justify, and I could justify in my mind if somebody used violence or armed resistance that they would have to pay a price. If somebody hurts somebody, then there are consequences of this. But somebody who was committed to nonviolence and was seen as a threat to the national security of one of the most powerful military countries in the region was deported. And that's when I committed my life to studying uh, and researching and trying to answer this question. What is the power of nonviolence? Uh, I ended up in the United States at that time to continue my education. Uh, did an undergraduate in political science and a master's in uh, peace and conflict resolution, all with this aim of, of coming back and serving uh, my community and my people in ending this occupation and bringing true peace and justice to this part of the world. And I came back uh, in 1998, and it was during the years of the Oslo peace process. It was when the Palestinian leadership and the Israeli leadership met and started to negotiate a peace treaty between them. And, and many people around the world, I'm sure yourself as well, were mm. excited mm. to see you know, Yasser Arafat, Hagrabin shaking hands, and we were so happy about it. Uh, and we felt, many people felt this was it. Peace was coming. You know, it, it was a framework called the two-state solution. The Palestinians will have a state. Uh, it was going to be in the 1967 territories, which is about 20% of the whole land. Mm. And the Palestinians said, yes, we'll take 20%. Just give us our freedom mm. and independence. And Israel was going to be on 80% of the land. And we're going to live happily ever after. And mm. that was the dream. That was the promise. Uh, but the reality was different. The reality on the ground was different than what was being spoken about in the media and in the negotiations. The reality uh, for me was one uh, where the first reality was that the issue of the settlements continued. And, and the settlements, uh, again, to those who don't know, are Israeli housing projects, communities, even as big as cities with 30,000, 40,000 people living in them that are built illegally, according to international law, in the occupied territories. And so when you're negotiating giving land for peace, you know, giving land to the Palestinians to have peace with Israel, why did the Israeli government continue to confiscate that land and build more settlement and expand existing settlements to an unprecedented level compared to the 30 years leading up to the negotiations. It was much faster and much stronger than any time before. And so for me, it was, why was this happening? And another point was that it felt, again, as a student of peace, the theory of peace, which is very basic, peace is about bringing people together, hmm. about creating reconciliation, creating trust, hmm. creating friendships, creating partnership. Hmm what we started seeing in the peace process was a, an intentional separation between the communities. As Palestinians, it became actually more difficult for us to go into Israel now than before the peace process began. Hmm. And for Israelis, it became more difficult for them to come into Palestinian areas. Again, it was much easier for them before the peace process began. Hmm. We needed to have permits all of a sudden. Uh, like hmm. for me, it was crazy. For me as a 
person living in Bethlehem to go to Jerusalem, which is 10 minutes away, something that we have done historically for thousands of years and hundreds of years as, as people living in this land. For the first time, mm. Bethlehem and Jerusalem were cut from each other mm. in the peace process itself. Mm. Now I have to have a special permit issued by an 18, 19-year-old Israeli soldier who says I have the right or not to go to Jerusalem to pray. Mm. And, and for me, these and many other reasons were the trigger to start this organization that I mm. still work at called Holy Land Trust. Mm. And as Holy Land Trust, we are an organization that is committed to peace and committed to justice. Uh, but for us, we are not looking at peace and justice as only finding the political solution. You know, many people think peace is just about having the two governments or the two authorities sign a treaty and then everything will be fine. Mm. This is this is not the peace we're looking for. We're mm. looking for a deep peace mm. of, of human connections, of, mm. of, of, I would say, embedded even in love as, mm. as, as what peace should be about for us. Mm. And so our work is, is looking into what would allow for this real peace to happen here. Mm. And, and I'll just say briefly now, and maybe we could talk about it mm. more, the three engagements that we work with are first a full commitment to nonviolence. We fully believe that nonviolence is the way violence has no place in this land. There has been enough shedding of blood in this land for hundreds and thousands of years already, and there will never be peace that will come through shedding of more blood in this land. So we fully believe that nonviolence is the way to move forward. The second aspect of work that we do, which is very important, is this deep realization of the effects of trauma and fear on communities and society. So we're doing deep work in understanding collective trauma and how collective trauma affects our collective decision-making and collective understanding of our identity and the identity of the other. And then we feel that this was completely ignored in the peace process. Yeah, we did not deal with our fears, our traumas, our pains as communities living in this land. Fears mm. and traumas that we created for each other, mm. and fears and traumas that we have inherited and brought into this land from other experiences. Mm. The third component of our work is transformation. We believe that we need visionary leaders that are able to really engage in creating a vision of peace that is beyond anything that maybe any of us can even imagine now. And so we do a lot of work and we have different methodologies in how do we bring understandings of consciousness and transformation and mindfulness and, and decision-making like free from fear into our communities. Mm. And we work with everybody. You mm. know, this, I'll end by saying we are open to working with everybody. Uh, anybody in this land who's open to engaging in conversation, engaging in process, engaging in healing work, vision work, nonviolent mm. work, Yes, we are committed to working with them as well. Hmm. Sammy, thanks so much. Um, you know, just hearing you talk, it, uh, I'm, I, you know, I just want to say it's a real privilege to have to have you. I said that at the beginning, but I, I really mean it. I, I, I think what you're doing is is so good and it's courageous, and I know that, um, yeah, it's never it's never easy. Um, I remember the first time I was in uh, Israel and Palestine was in 2003. Um, I, I remember I, I read 
well, I, I won't go into it, but I mean, I grew up in a very, well, I grew up in a great home that believed in peace and reconciliation, but we also had a, had a Christian Zionist outlook, as I'm sure you've met many of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, that changed quite quickly and naturally as my as I got a bit older, and and my parents even changed their perspectives quite 180 degrees. Um, so from you know my teenage years on, I, I always had a sensitivity towards a sense of there's got to be justice. And um, I, I, but the first time I went was was 2003, and it was when the uh, the separation wall was being built. And it was a it was an interesting time. I, I remember meeting a lot of activists, brief parents for peace, and you know, uh, met your dad. I think you came in the room at one point, um, but uh, um, that was you know a long time ago. But I remember one day going out to a field um, and meeting a Palestinian farmer, and he was showing us the village that he was from. I, I can't remember where it's from. It's it's outside Bejal, outside near Jerusalem, and. And next to the, the village is this empty grass land. He said, this is our land. This is where we farm our sheep and grow our olives. And he said, the wall is going to go right along between the village and the land. So the people won't be able to access their means of producing food. And and we were all listening and going, that's sad. And he said, uh, you know, and he just kind of pointed his finger and he says, will you listen? You know, you come, people come and they they leave and they forget about us, but don't you forget, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time, um, I just had a real sense of this is the this is the finger of God pointing at me, you know, like don't forget. Um, and so ever since I've I've always the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is one of the places I feel most kind of passionate about, and the sense of part of reconciliation is justice. I just wonder, when I was here in 2003, they were building walls. It was kind of very crazy. Um, the Intifada, I guess, had happened maybe a year or two before. Um, when I've been back since, it's very different. It feels like it doesn't feel messy. It feels clean, surgical, like there has been a almost like a suffocation. Um, I wonder how you can describe you know, when I when I went in 2003, the kind of you go through a checkpoint. It was a bit haphazard. The army were there. Now you go. It's like you go into an international airport. There's X-ray machines, and it's it's so pristine. And you know, you don't. It's like the death of humanity there, but the death of imagination. And it and I feel like Palestinians now their voice is just choked. Is is silent. Can you tell us a little bit about what is life like for you now in in 2022 there. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think in a way, in a way you answered the question. It's just choking <laughs> the life out of people here. It's choking the spirit out of people uh, to the point where the wall is there and most Palestinians have become so used to it that they can't even see it anymore. They can't feel it anymore. It's, it's just like the scar that, that is so present in our lives. Uh, but for us, it is it is a continuous uh, and growing, I would even say, uh, suffering uh, as a result of building this wall on Palestinian lands and surrounding our Palestinian towns and villages with these walls and fences. Uh, and, and many people don't realize this uh, at all. They think, you know, they, they look at this and say, oh, well, it's there, live with it. But, but imagine, like, just between 2003 and today, so it's almost 20 years of having this wall being built in Bethlehem. The wall, first of all, 
is not just taking land that belongs to the city. It's taking also where the water resources are. And so the whole system of building the wall also aligns with where the major water underground resources are that are now completely on the Israeli side and controlled by the Israeli military or the Israeli government. The access to water that we have today is the same amount of access water to that we had before 2003. The population has grown tremendously since that time. And so you can imagine just one issue is the water challenges that we face in the summer. I mean, on a, on, a, on a continuous basis, we don't have continuous running water. Water is open at best of times once every week, once every two weeks. And so we have to save water in tanks so that we could use them or in, in our cisterns beneath the, the ground. Uh, in the summer, once every month, once every two months, we get access uh, to this water. The population growth is leading to tremendous tension in the population. Just to give a simple example of traffic in the city. Uh, when I used to take my girls to school, it was a five, maybe maximum seven minute drive from the house to school. Imagine now that this same drive takes me 25 minutes, sometimes half an hour. The tension, the unemployment rate that is high, the lack of resources, the lack of access to land for farming, the farmers afraid to reach their land because of attacks uh, by settlers uh, towards them. Uh, today, I was on a field visit, visiting five different farming communities around Bethlehem, where the farmers are in absolute fear of settler attacks as the spring comes, because this is when the trees get uh, burned, the trees get cut, the settlers come into their land and destroy, even killing their flock. And so it's we just went there just to hear them, to hear their voice and to see how we could support them. And so there is tremendous, tremendous tension that exists in addition to the lack of movement, the lack of access to resources, the lack of access to hospitals that we used to have in Jerusalem, the best hospitals. Now we cannot go there. Schools in Jerusalem that we used to have access to that we cannot go there. Holy sites in Jerusalem that we had access to that we cannot go there again without these special permits. It's it's a it's it's a very very dark time uh, that that we have been living in under this wall and and again it doesn't make the media because only when there is violence when there is eruption of incidences that makes the media uh, the rest of life is just life you know live with it uh, according to the media uh, but I'm thankful for you and shows like this that allow us to to bring this reality back mm -hmm. into play that. The situation is difficult, and then we're worried. I mean, uh, you know, Bethlehem specifically, and, and if we add the whole issue with the pandemic and corona that has, you know, of, of course, all the world has suffered from this. But once you're living under occupation and you're living under suppression and then you add this layer, then it's even much, much worse for the people here. Uh, the, Bethlehem, as you know very well, is a city that depends on uh, tourism, on pilgrims. Uh, this pandemic has cut tourism completely off. Uh, you know, I, I could count the number of tourists that I have seen in Bethlehem in the last two years. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and most of these tourists are local internationals who live here, who come and visit Bethlehem. Uh, mm -hmm. 
hotels are shut down, restaurants are shut down, souvenirs are shut down. Our major source of income is completely shut down mm-hmm. uh, in Bethlehem. And uh, this is just a, a, sim- a symbol of the rest of the Palestinian uh, cities as well. Mm-hmm. So every day I think we're living on, on an edge of either an eruption or a breakdown in the Palestinian mm-hmm. community. And I don't know what, what will come first. Yeah. I will even honestly share that there's complete uh, mistrust in our own uh, authority and our leadership that we feel has achieved what they promised and set out to achieve. Where is our dependence? Where is our freedom? Where is the promises of our leaders to create better life for the Palestinians? And so on many, many levels, there is tension and there is stress and there is fear within the Palestinian uh, community. Thanks, Sammy. Um Sorry if there's banging in my room. I don't know, don't know what it is. If it's, it's these old water pipes in this hundred-year-old building I'm in, or what? But um, uh, Sammy, that's really have, moving. Water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least I have water. Exactly. Um, I know. Uh, it's that's really moving to hear you um, hear you re- re- relating the reality on the ground uh, for for you there, um, Sammy. Um, I you've spoken very kind of graphically about how hard it is and, and the re- absolute injustice of Israeli governments, Israeli military, and sadly also of settlers and, and many Palestinian farmers being vulnerable to settler attacks. But at the same time, I remember hearing you talk um, and being very moved as you relayed your own experience of, of journeying to try to understand your enemy. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the experience you had where you went to a concentration camp and kind of what what that was all about? Yes, uh, for me, it was one of the most uh, uh, deepest and turning point experiences of my life where I was invited by friends uh, who run an organization called the Zen Peacemaker Community, Bernie Glassman and Eve Marco. Uh, to join them on a retreat that they hold annually called the Bearing Witness Retreat. Uh, and they do it in Auschwitz and Bergenau in the death camps in Poland. And then, you know, our Palestinian narrative of the Holocaust is is one of disconnect. It's not about denying it. Uh, we just don't talk about it. Uh, you know, for most Palestinians, this is something that happened in the past. Uh, it's done with. Now it's about our suffering. This is the reality on the ground now. Uh, you know, some Palestinians would say we are the victims of the most victimized people. So we acknowledge the victimization of the Jewish people, but we see them how they're victimizing us. Uh, but in Auschwitz, it was a deep experience because I would say in Auschwitz, I understood what this conflict is about, what this occupation is about, what what the situation we're living is about. I understood it. it, is, it comes from fear. Uh, the Jewish community is a community that sadly uh, for hundreds and thousands of years has suffered around the world. Uh, and, and, and sadly, a lot of the suffering actually did happen in Europe, uh, not in the Middle East or in other communities uh, where the Jewish people lived as much as in Europe. Uh, racism, anti-Semitism that emerged in these uh, countries uh, was very, very strong. Jews were suppressed. Jews were denied access to to equal rights, uh, and and all of uh, ghettoized, and of course, ultimately leading up to the Holocaust itself and the millions that were killed in the Holocaust. 
And that is a traumatizing effect that, again, reshapes identity, reshapes Jewish identity, where survival becomes what we need to do no matter what the price is for other people. And, and so what I realized is at that point is that this conflict cannot be resolved or fixed if we don't address our collective traumas. And as Palestinians, of course, we have our historic collective trauma from the time of the British and maybe even before from the Ottomans that continues until uh, this day. And then for me, it touched the core of really understanding what, what this conflict is about. When I was in Auschwitz, I was witness to hearing several times Israeli teachers talk to Israeli kids about what the situation is. And then, I don't know if your audience knows this or not, but every year thousands of Israeli children go to these death camps, usually paid for either by the government or foundations or donations that are given. So it's a free trip where their children go to. And initially you think, yes, it's good that they will learn about their history. The challenge and the problem was that Auschwitz wasn't presented to them as what happened to us in our history as a Jewish people. It was presented as the continuation of suffering of the Jewish people that has existed for 2,000 years and will continue to exist for hundreds of years to come. Even using text from uh, uh, during the Passover ceremony, which is you know one of the high holidays within the Jewish calendar, there's a repeated text that they use, and these teachers were using it in Auschwitz, which is every generation and nation rises up to destroy us. Imagine being a 13, 14-year-old child being told that your generation, a nation, will rise up to destroy you. And this is why we have to protect ourselves. This is why we have to be secure. This is why we have to be strong. And to even to the point where I heard several teachers even referring to the nation that will rise up to destroy them if that nation had a chance. And guess who that nation would be? The Palestinians. The Palestinians, yeah. Even what, like one was saying, if the Palestinians have an opportunity, they'll do to you what the Nazis did to your ancestors. Mm. And then that child is told, that's why you have to join the army. You're responsible for protecting the state. You're responsible for protecting the nation. This is why there is so much rejection of Israeli the young teenagers who refuse to serve in the army. They're, you know, they're refuseniks. They're, they're seen not just as having a, a moral choice not to serve or a right not to serve. They are seen as traitors to the Jewish nations if they refuse to serve in the army. It's such deeply entrenched in the mindset of the Israeli society that the only way that we can protect ourselves from this happening again is if we have a strong army and we make sure that nobody else can do this violence to us again, mm. which the Palestinians never did and the Palestinians will never do. Uh, I mean, yes, what happened in Auschwitz and then the Nazi Germany is you know, beyond any of us imagination as an atrocity to, for all of humanity uh, and just creating this, uh, yeah, this fear-based ideology that only by us suppressing others can we survive as a nation and using then all of the biblical texts and ideological uh, settings added to this uh, is something that we need to address. And this is why for me, I would even say dealing with the collective trauma 
is even more important than anything else we can do. Uh, mm. You know, traumatized individuals make decisions based, mm. on, based on their trauma. Mm. And, and so collectively, we do the same. Mm. And, uh, and so, yeah, for me, the core of building any piece is, is mutual trust and respect. And if a teacher is telling these children who are going to the army, we could never trust the Palestinians, we could never trust the Arabs because one day they'll do to us what the Nazis did, then what piece are we talking about? Mm-hmm. And then so knowing the enemy uh, doesn't justify the enemy's act. It allows mm-hmm. me to address the enemy in a way to prevent, hopefully, that act from repeating itself in the mm-hmm. future. And and then I, we could really then talk about what justice is. Then we could mm-hmm. really talk about what peace is, what equality is. Mm-hmm. And so healing healing of the trauma, I think, is a key component of peacemaking that needs mm-hmm. to happen in this land. Yeah. So how is that for you? I mean, you're working with, um, I guess, pretty much Palestinian uh, young people and or people. Um, and you know, it, it must be difficult for you to talk about, let's um, use words like empathy and understanding, because again, you're, you're dealing with people who are feeling oppressed and feeling like they're being occupied. And um, uh, how do you communicate about collective trauma and, and moving people beyond um, kind of uh, demonizing the other side? How do you do it without seeming like you're taking the side of the enemy, you know? It's not easy at all. And then we've been called also traitors and collaborators for doing this work, but we believe in it. Mm-hmm. And then we see we see the transformation happening when healing happens. Uh, we, we've seen Israelis that have truly liberated themselves from that understanding of trauma and began to see deeply, not just occupation, but the injustice that they're doing to the Palestinians and become real activists for peace not activists for creating separation between us and them mm-hmm. because you know the peace process was actually a means to continue to perpetuate the trauma in the communities mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. the two state solution was about creating separation mm-hmm. not about bringing people together mm-hmm. and now these people that many of them have taken our courses and programs uh, or trainings or workshops in, in collective trauma they've, they've become even stronger activists than what they were before or even new activists when they were not activists. Mm. So I think this encourages Palestinians to engage in this more. But but for me, to be honest, I cannot demand more of the Palestinians than what they are mm. able to offer at any point. And when mm. people are ready, they come to us and we engage in this work. Mm. We're also doing a lot of work when it comes to the collective trauma within our own community. And, mm. and this is important. We can't always, you know, our issues are not just Palestinian-Israeli issue in this land. We have our own issues, our own traumas between our own people that we need to work on and address as well. Mm-hmm. So many times we start by working just within our community. So we're doing the, the the workshops within our community. And then from there, we offer if anybody would like to join in, in, in a joint trauma healing workshop, they're more than welcome. We never push anybody or try to convince anybody. It comes pretty much from their own choice uh, to participate in this. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there's so much uh, we could talk about, Sammy. Uh, just before we we went live, you were telling me about a conference you're organizing, and it it sounded fascinating. The kind of the bringing together of the sacred and activism. 
Um, can you tell us about that? I was in uh, Standing Rock a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, and um, we recorded a podcast with David Archambault, who was the uh, the tribal leader of the nation, Standing Rock Nation, and I was deeply moved by it. And I was amazed then to hear that you were also inspired by that. So tell us about that. Yeah. So Standing Rock uh, was an amazing example of, I think, what many of us in the activist community have been seeking and looking for, which is bringing sacredness and spirituality and activism together. The, the term sacred activism is a term that has been coined for many, many years, but I think Standing Rock really put it on the map. How do you bring prayer into your activism? What, what we have seen in this land and many places around the world is you have people that are focusing on their spiritual journey. I want to work on my inner peace. I want to go sit in a temple. I just want to do my prayers. You know, like if I, if I can't feel my inner peace and inner light, then I cannot be anything in this world. So they spend years just, you know, sitting in caves and mountains or doing yoga or doing meditation or prayers and just working on their inner peace while the world is on fire around them. Mm. The other side of this is, and I, I mean, I say this jokingly, but like just to give the, for the point, the other side of this is you have the activists that are engaging in the resistance, that are engaging in, in fighting for justice, that are engaging in liberation movement, but are coming from a place, and I would say I was one of them, uh, even in non-violently, but coming from a place of, being filled with hatred and resentment towards my enemy. My engagement in nonviolence, for example, in the past was I wanted to show the world that I'm better than them. Like I wanted to demonize them globally by showing them how bad they are because they use violence. Therefore, I use nonviolence. And so you have an activist community that are coming from a, a very negative energy space and you have a, a spiritual community that are not engaging. And so we thought of how, again, how do you bring is, uh, yeah, activism and spirituality together. This is what Standing Rock was for us. When they said water is life, this is, you know, the slogan that they used. Mm. It wasn't water is ours and this land is ours and we need to protect it. We need to protect water because it is for everybody including the people that are suppressing us, including the people that are building the pipelines. Mm. So Standing Rock uh, ignited this global movement called the Defend the Sacred Alliance, which I was invited to be part of. It's a global movement that includes communities of sacred leaders, spiritual leaders and activists from all around the world. For five years, we've been meeting, discussing this question of what sacred activism is. A group of us decided to bring this locally. And so now we have a local branch of Palestinians and Israelis that are in a continuous process of researching and engaging in actions and activities that, again, bring prayer and sacredness and activism together. And so we're, we're meeting once a month. We have retreats that we're meeting in. And now we're moving into a phase of looking into what are the projects that we're going to implement coming again from inspiration of standing rock so when we talk about a project what what are the elements for example we have water we have fire we have land we have air how what are the projects that deal with justice in this land by addressing the environmental damage done by the occupation on this land as well the occupation doesn't just affect us as humans 
It's affecting mm -hmm. our resources that we are all supposed to love because these resources were made for all of us. And so how are we engaging in activism and sacredness that are also connected to the environment and the ecology of this land as well? And so this is something that really excites me because, again, it goes beyond identity, beyond borders, beyond political solutions. The environment, the land doesn't have boundaries between it. The animals and the plants don't have boundaries between them. You know, this olive tree is Palestinian and this olive tree is really doesn't exist like this for the olive tree. It is here for all of us. And I think part of this work is the deep healing work and transformation work and nonviolent work and also a visioning of, of a different future uh, for this land that's coming from sacred activism. Wow. Sammy, I wonder just if you could, um, you know, I, I remember Mother Teresa said, um, what, what did she say? If we, if we have conflict, it's because we've forgotten that we, we belong to each other. Um, and, you know, you're talking about the, how the peace process in a sense in, in, in Israel, Palestine separated you and, and stopped you from coming together. I mean, how is there like a spiritual discipline or something that talking about spirit, you know, sacred activism, is there something that enables you to hold on to hope in the midst of despair? You know, cause I'm sure you would love to make peace tomorrow. <laughs> if you, <laughs> if you could go and meet someone, you, I know you would do it, but you, you can't and, and you're stuck. And how, how do you kind of live in that place? It must be very hard. There must be much despair. It's it's very hard, and it's not easy. And uh, I was just sharing uh, earlier with the friends how how I have my moments where I don't know. Mm. I, I I really don't know if it, it can happen, if, if I can do anything about it. Uh, but for me, I think this is the calling. Like, we are here. We're living here. And, and we want to create a better situation for all the people in this land. Uh, there has been so much suffering, so much bloodshed, so much destruction of the nature of this land as, as a result of all of this as well. I, I, I see it. You know, once you see a vision, you begin to commit to it and work for it. And I know it might not happen in my lifetime. It might not happen in my daughter's lifetime. But where we are now compared to where we were as a movement 25 years ago and 30 years ago, I feel the, the, the deeper understanding of, of justice in ways that I, I would say I did not experience before, especially from Israelis that are working with us, mm. that the, there, there is an awakening that is happening. And, and in a sense, it feels like maybe it's even related to the pandemic. And I think what we're experiencing mm. around the world is, is people are moving into the extreme positions now. And so, yes, while some people are, are moving into very radical, extreme positions on the right, I see on the other side, there are also people that are moving into very radical, extreme positions as well. And I think at one point, this is where the hope is that the, the people that are believing in peace and justice and equality in this land, their voice will rise because this is the voice that is going to end bloodshed and violence and bring peace and security to all the people of this land. My hope is in humanity that, mm. that we'll wake up one day and mm. realize that we're, we're really messing up everything around us and, and mm. there is a better future for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and nonviolence is obviously the beginning of, if, if the, you know, the primary aim of the Holy Land Trust, I guess, or the first one of your three aims, do you have any kind of um, experience? I mean, I remember um, visiting the Nasser farm, Dawood Nasser and his brothers and, and, um, 
outside their property, they have the sign, uh, we refuse to be enemies. And uh, I just thought, I mean, some of the best people I've met in my, in the li- in my life are Palestinians, you know, I mean, it's just amazing, you guys, you know, um, they, you know, that statement, we refuse to be enemies when they're surrounded by settlers and army, you know, people stealing land. Uh, it's a remarkable kind of a nonviolent response. Do you have any kind of kind of actual stories of, uh, you know, um, nonviolent kind of activism and how it's kind of impacted individuals' lives and changed situations maybe, or? Yeah, I'll just share recently our last uh, engagement with uh, the Defend the Sacred uh, work that we're doing uh, was supporting a community near Jericho called Ausaj. And I would love to have people get to know this community more and more. It's an intentional farming community that was built from scratch by Palestinians uh, outside of Jericho. And their commitment was to save land uh, that was threatened uh, by a nearby settlement. And, and, And bringing Israelis and Palestinians, again, with this notion of sacred activism, using nonviolence, Putting ourselves uh, on, on on the hotline uh, in front of the settlers, and supporting this community by bringing water into this land, by b- supporting them in building their homes. We even built a community center for them on this land. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, for me, it, it it was one of the few and first examples of practicing sacred nonviolent activism uh, in a way, and and it's great. great gain momentum and people are coming more and more and supporting this community, including many Israelis. And so there are little signs of hope that exist. Yes, land confiscation continues, settlement buildings continue. We need more of this. And and my hope is that at one point there will be an awakening. You know, we need an awakening of both Palestinians and Israelis to come together and say enough is enough. And, and, And so I'm hoping these small things, these small actions that are happening here and there, are just the things that are keeping the flame alive a little bit uh, mm-hmm. for the full fueling to come so this thing mm-hmm. can really take off. Uh, and this is why we do what we do. You know, as, as you said, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, but keeping hope alive is keeping the light mm-hmm. alive for the future generations. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks, Sammy. And uh, just for anyone listening, your organization is the Holy Land Trust, holylandtrust.org is your website. Um, is there anything in, in particular you would, what I hear you saying is you would love people to come and visit and, um, you know. As soon as you're able to come and visit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. if you go to the holylandtrust.org website, we're also sharing many of the projects and activities that we're doing. And if people uh, feel a call to support this work, uh, which is needed at this time, uh, you are more than welcome to yeah, visit holandtrust.org uh, and support yeah. us. Thanks, Sammy. Well, I just want to invite, um, you know, you're talking about essentially people from outside around the world coming to, to, to Palestine and joining in with you. And a great example of that is someone who's co-written a book recently about with your dad, about the life of your dad, Bashara Awad, who, who um, I remember meeting in 2003, and uh, he was uh, he was a great, just a gentle, beautiful saint. He is a beautiful, gentle, beautiful saint, and uh, he started the Bethlehem Bible College. And so I wonder, Josh, if we can bring Mercy in. And I've just asked Mercy to come and just maybe, I don't know if you're going to read a little bit from the book, Mercy, and uh, 
so Mercy, you're a great example of, of someone showing advocacy and coming alongside the Palestinian people. How did you get involved in um, the Israeli-Palestinian thing in a, in a nutshell? Ooh, a nutshell. Uh, I grew up with a really strong Christian Zionist leaning like most American Christians. So it wasn't until I read the book Blood Brothers in about 2004 that I even became aware of the fact that there were Palestinian Christians, that Palestinians had their a, a beautiful and resilient and graceful and traumatic history of their own. I just had no idea. Um, so when the summer of 2014 rolled around and Israel was bombing Gaza, that just sort of lit a fire under me. And I found myself thinking about Israel and Palestine every day, not knowing much about it. But I suddenly was just more curious about that issue than anything else on earth. And so I started Googling around and I eventually found a uh, link to Bethlehem Bible College. And I saw a video of a man with white hair standing underneath the separation wall, Alex Awad, who was talking about the Sammy's Christians uncle. in Gaza. Yeah. And I was like, what? There's Christians in Gaza? What's this Bethlehem Bible College? What is all this? So uh, long story short, I finally thought this issue has become like obsessive for me. I need to go over there so I can actually see everything with my own eyes and meet Palestinians, meet Israelis and see what God is doing there and see if there's anything that I can do uh, to be a part of that. So that's yeah. my nutshell. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And do you have uh, an extra, can you show us the book? Um, there, there it is. I don't know, Josh, if you want to put up the slide, there it is, yet in the dark streets shining. Um, Palestinian story of hope and resilience in Bethlehem, Bishara Awad and Mercy Aiken. So that's available on Amazon. So I encourage you all to go and get a copy. Um, Mercy, is there like an extract from that that you wanted oh, to read? you know, or? yeah, it was yeah. hard to think about what, because this story is so involved. Any excerpt that you pull out almost needs like a ton of uh, explanation. But while Sammy was talking, I thought that it might be appropriate to read from the very first opening chapter in which Sammy and his wife Rana are escaping out of Bethlehem and Bishara is... Um, seeing this, Bashar is this, experiencing this through his eyes. So I'll just give a little bit of background before I start reading part of this chapter, because I won't be able to read the whole thing. Um, Bashar wakes up early in the morning and he looks out the window and he sees a convoy of military tanks going down Hebron Road, right in front of the Bible College. They're driving over cars that are parked on the road. They're driving over lamp lamps, light posts that are just being smashed. Um, and he quickly realizes there's no power, the, everything's cut. Um, they start hearing through the grapevine that Bethlehem is being put under full curfew. And um, eventually the tanks and everything, they surround the Church of the Holy Nativity, where a bunch of um, Palestinians, some of them were civilians, some of them were gunmen, some of them were policemen. Uh, they take refuge inside the Church of the Nativity, along with the priests who live there and the monks, and now the Church of the Holy Nativity is surrounded by basically snipers, and the whole city of Bethlehem is under curfew. And then Bashara gets a phone call from his son, Sammy, who calls and says, Dad, we're gonna try to get out of Bethlehem right now. Uh, Rana, my wife, is due to have a baby any day, and we can't be stuck here in Bethlehem under curfew. 
uh, in this situation. We've got to get her to a hospital in Jerusalem. So I'll just pick up with that, with that part. Um, the call ended, and now it was time to cast my cares upon the one who carries all of our concerns in his deep heart. Unbidden, the image came to me of Joseph and Mary 2,000 years ago, carefully making their way to the very location where the besieged church now stood. What circumstances had forced them into the grotto, to the cave where the animals were kept? What desperation might they have felt as her labor pains arrived and they understood that there was no other choice for them, that it must be here where she would give birth for the fullness of time had come and could not be stopped. Perhaps this was a template, a pattern for Sammy and Rana, maybe in the well-worn path of this sacred story upon which so many worshipers had walked and prayed and even crawled for the past 2000 years, there was a path for Sammy and Rana and their unborn child to find their way to safety. I pondered the next part of the story, the cruel murder of all of Bethlehem's infant sons, and then Joseph's dream warning them to flee Bethlehem for the sake of the child, just as Sammy and Rana were now doing. The story was as old as time, a story upon which I had built my life and faith. But would it prove true again in today's Bethlehem for the sake of my own grandchild? The siege itself did not come as a surprise. We had been bracing ourselves for something like this for the past few weeks, as the Israeli military had already invaded several other Palestinian cities. Just a few days earlier, a teenage suicide bomber from Dehesha refugee camp on the outskirts of Bethlehem killed herself and several others in Jerusalem. Since then, we knew that it was just a matter of time, but no one had expected an invasion of this intensity. A string of suicide bombings preceded hers, making March the bloodiest month so far of a very violent year. The worst incident took place during a Passover Seder in Netanya just a few weeks earlier, when 30 people were killed and almost 150 injured. Several of our Messianic Jewish friends lived in Netanya, and I called Dave and Lisa Loden, who in better times had directed our college choir, to send my condolences and check on them. I knew that they were deeply grieving, as we all were. How had we digressed to this point less than a decade after signing a treaty that had given us all such hope? For the past year, the college had been closed more days than it had been open, and our campus battered by Israeli soldiers who made themselves at home in an empty seven-story building across the street. We had replaced every single window, all 67 of them, as well as our solar panels and the tanks on the roof that collected precious rainwater. I suspected they were used for target practice. Our giant mural of angels announcing the birth of Christ to the shepherds was riddled with bullet holes and an especially large hole had pierced the head of a lamb. It seemed a potent symbol of our entire situation. Praying quietly, I walked over to the large windows in our living room that faced the hills of Beit Jala, a city above Bethlehem that merged into our city. If one did not know better, they might imagine that they were merely looking at a peaceful Middle Eastern neighborhood nestled amidst the olive groves that drew life from the rain that fell on all of us whether good or evil, whether Palestinian or Israeli. 
Through the gray clouds that hung low on the hill, I could see the golden dome of the St. Nicholas Orthodox Church gleaming brightly. My eye followed the skyline to where a new bridge stretched across the valley, connecting Jewish settlements to Jerusalem. It was a bridge that neither Sammy nor I were allowed to drive on due to our Palestinian ID cards. To the right of the bridge on the hill above it, I could see part of the Israeli settlement of Gilo. For many Israelis, it was simply a suburban Jerusalem neighborhood, but to us, it was confiscated olive groves, confiscated farmlands from Bethlehem, Beit Jala, and other communities on our side of the border. Just past Gilo was Beit Safafa, where Sammy and Rana were attempting to escape. Everything was so close and yet separated by an almost impassable gulf of ethnic and religious distinctions, barriers of all kinds, and ever-changing laws that made traveling even a few miles to Jerusalem an event that required serious planning. Somewhere out there in the gathering darkness, Sammy and Rana were slowly making their way toward Jerusalem. I hoped. I dared not imagine anything else. Salwa came and stood beside me. Gripping each other's hands tightly, we began to pray as we never had before. Lord, you made a place for the birth of your son, even in the chaos of those days. Please do it again for my family, I whispered. I'm asking you for one more miracle. Please keep our children and grandchildren safe. During our long wait that day, I began to remember the Lord's faithfulness towards me and my family over a lifetime of war and loss in what is known as the Holy Land and all of the holy and unholy things I had witnessed, starting with the terrible and fateful events of my childhood that set the course of my life in motion. So that's- Thanks, Mercy. Thanks, Mercy. I mean, I, I think it, it was nice to have your voice because Sammy's talking about the, sometimes the indifference um, that the West can have towards, well, anywhere, but especially to situations like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And and by writing the book and or co-writing with Bishara, you're combating indifference and you're championing. And um, my hope is that many of the people listening will, you know, be able to hear Sammy's words and and get involved and, and help and amplify voices that need to be heard. Uh, how old is your daughter now, Sammy? A beautiful 19-year-old girl. Wow. Leia, amazing, amazing. Amazing, yeah, yeah. Very special. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it, I think we should, without kind of uh, prolonging it anymore, um, just maybe leave it for some final words from, from you both, maybe. Uh, maybe first Mercy and then Sammy, just some reflections on, on what we've heard. Um, just want to also mention uh, Vincent Colgan's listening. Uh, a great Irishman in, in uh, America at the moment. And um, he's uh, saying this is a great program. So uh, I'm, I'm glad for people like Vincent who follow along with our, our work. Um, so Mercy, any kind of, you've listened to Sammy and you've lived in, in the Holy Land and just closing kind of thoughts, reflections. Hmm. You know, I would just say um, listening to Palestinian voices is one of the uh, most um, productive things I think that anyone who wants to learn more about the situation over there 
can do. And I'll just make one more little plug for this book because Bashara, Sammy at the beginning, he talked a lot about some of his family history, uh, the death of his grandfather, Bashara's dad in the war of 1948. Um, so this, this book will give you a very strong Palestinian perspective of what it was like to live through the Nakba um, to grow up in Jerusalem, in a divided Jerusalem under um, Jordan, and then live through the Six-Day War, and then coming up through the intifadas that Bashara lived through, all while he's trying to uh, be very faithful to God and to build up the Christian community, which is leaving um, in droves uh, through the years. The population is continuing to shrink, and Bashara's passion is to keep a living presence of people who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ in the land of Jesus Christ. So if you want to learn more about that, I'll just say, check out this book, learn more from Sammy, go visit Bethlehem Bible College. Um, there's a lot of wonderful resources out there that will really hmm. broaden your mind and heart. Hmm. Sammy, what, what about you? What do, what do you have to say to most people listening here? I mean, a lot of them are in Ireland, but also Australia, South Africa, um, America, obviously, any kind of closing kind of thoughts for us? Well, I, I almost want to say if mercy can do it, everybody can. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that I know, you know, like I'm very thankful for mercy. And, and she's a local one here. You know, we just can't wait for her to come back. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, this this land is very special to many of us. And, and you know, we, we just cannot remain silent and allow the bloodshed to continue the way it is. We cannot even do this taking sides and justifying one by the other by looking into biblical texts and saying, oh, the Bible says so and and mistranslating anything about the Bible in order to create some ideology to support some group against another. Uh, we, we need to work really hard to bring peace into this land. And I think many of us believe that peace in this land and bringing the three religions together in peace in this land will have such a big effect globally as well. And so for me, yes, uh, the call is we need more people to get involved. We need to work harder for peace and justice in this land. And not just for the sake of you know, Palestinian liberation in a sense so that, that this particular group is, is free. This is important. And we know many people are oppressed around the world. But there is something really, really special about this land that when peace comes to Jerusalem, when peace comes to this land, I believe we will see the world shift as well and change. And so my encouragement is to really continue to work and work and work for peace in this land. Come here, come visit, come get to know the Palestinians, come live with Palestinian families, break your old paradigms of what this is about and create new ones that really are about the healing and justice in this land as well. Um, yeah, thank you, Sammy, so much. Um, so yes, go do what Sammy says, go and visit uh, when COVID allows, and um, let's go and see and get behind uh, brilliant organizations like the Holy Land Trust, Bethlehem Bible College, Bishara Awards organization, uh, and, you know, if Sammy's coming to visit, I think you come and visit every now and then. You go and speak around the world. If he's coming, take people, let them hear a voice of a Palestinian. And, um, thanks, Sammy, for teaching us um, about nonviolence, about what it looks like to respond to occupation, not with indifference, but with empathy, um, with a cry for justice, 
um, and an, an attempt to kind of move beyond trauma to uh, healing. So thanks, Sammy, for your time. This podcast will be on our website, guardiansofflame.org, uh, where you can see our Irish documentary and all the other podcasts. Uh, it'll be on YouTube and all that kind of stuff. So please share it, let people know, and let people know about Sammy and the brilliant work he's doing. Thank you, Sammy. Thanks, Mercy Aiken. Get you, that book as well. Thank you.